We have begun a series last week, basically entitled, The Stories the New Testament Assumes You Know. I don't know if you've ever been reading the New Testament, and then they'll kind of say something or reference something, and you feel like you've dropped in on a conversation and out of context, and like they're assuming that you know what they're talking about. And oftentimes it can be really confusing or really disorienting when you're reading the New Testament and all of a sudden they start talking about things that don't really make a whole lot of sense. Oftentimes when that happens, it's actually referencing back to an Old Testament story, an Old Testament psalm, an Old Testament truth. And when you reference back and you look back to those Old Testament passages, you end up really being able to get a better understanding of what the New Testament is truly saying. Because the Bible truly is one unified book. The Old Testament is not in contradiction to the New Testament, nor is the New Testament in contradiction to the Old Testament. Instead, Augustine, one of the great first century pastors, preachers, theologians, thinkers, he says that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, but the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So for this series, what we're doing is we're going back to the Old Testament and we're seeing significant passages that we must understand in order to be able to understand the New Testament correctly. And Psalm 110, if you look at it numerically, is one of the most important passages for us to understand in order for us to understand the New Testament. And the reason is, is this is the most quoted and alluded to psalm in the entire book of Psalms, and one of the most quoted and alluded to passages in the entire, from the entire Old Testament referenced by the New Testament. It is referenced according to James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor in the 1900s, uh, which sounds like a long time ago, but it's really not that long ago, <laughs> but the 1900s, uh, he counted 27 times that it was quoted or referenced. That's one for every single New Testament book. That means this is something really important. And it shouldn't surprise us that what it deals with is the character and the person and the ministry of Jesus himself. It shows us something very fundamental, essential, about the character, the nature, the person, and the ministry of Jesus himself. And here we're going to see three different things about Jesus' character and ministry. Three different pictures, three different allusions, three different offices that he holds that help us to be able to understand who Jesus really is and what he's really come to do. And the character of Jesus is so big that oftentimes the Bible has to use a bunch of different metaphors and references to try and get a grasp of who Jesus really is. Have you ever noticed that? Like he's the vine, but he's the door, and he's the shepherd, and he's all these different things because the Bible is trying to communicate a character that's so big, so magnificent, and so awesome that they have to use so many different analogies and illusions and pictures to try and picture who he is. I don't know if we have any Lord of the Rings fans here, but I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. And it's almost as good as Harry Potter. It's close, but Lord of the Rings, it's okay. Wow, that was a negative response. Wow. <laughs> Harry Potter will forever be my love, but Lord of the Rings. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> In the Lord of the Rings, you Lord of the Rings fans, how may, which character points to Jesus and why? Who? Frodo. Frodo. Why? 
Yeah, exactly. He is small. He is little. He's half the size of everybody else, but he carries the very essence of evil to Mount Doom and drops it into the fire. Jesus, he made himself of no reputation, it says in Philippians chapter 2, coming in the form of bondservant and in the likeness of men, but in that, in so doing, he destroyed the forces of evil. He destroyed evil itself by coming to this earth. That's one picture of Jesus. Who else pictures Jesus in the Lord of the Rings? (laughs) Aragorn. The king has returned, right? He comes back at the end and establishes his kingdom. And, and in the book, it, it says that there was a prophecy that healing would be in his hands. And so he goes and he heals the whole thing. It's like, that's just Jesus, okay? But then the third one also is Gandalf, right? He dies. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome. The third one is Gandalf, right? He goes down into the, the depths of the earth and fights this, like, demonic, crazy Balrog creature and dies, but then is resurrected as Gandalf the White, right? Even J.R.R. Tolkien himself had to use three different characters to try and picture the massive gravity of the person of Jesus. That's just how big of a character he is. And so here what we see is we see three different Two different pictures and one really statement about the nature and character of the person of Jesus himself. And the first thing we see that is that he is the king. Psalm 110, it is a messianic psalm, which the word Messiah means anointed one. It means someone who's set apart for a purpose. He's in a specific office. And throughout the Old Testament, there is this anticipation of a Messiah, an anointed one, who would be a king to put everything right. A king that would truly rise with healing in its wings, not just in his hands. A true king that would come to be able to set everything right. And so much of the Old Testament is living in anticipation of it. The book of Judges, it says repeatedly throughout the book of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king in Israel. The book of Judges is one of the most depressing, just destructive books in the entire Old Testament because it's helping us to know if there is no king, the people will perish. They will literally destroy themselves. So the necessity of the king is established in the book of Judges. And then 1 Samuel comes and they say, hey, we're going to get a king. They go grab Saul. He's tall. He's dark. He's handsome. He's got to be the guy. (laughs) So they make him king. And then they realize, wait a minute. Outward appearances have nothing to do with the inward character or effectiveness of a person and a kingship role. So they're like, that was kind of a bust. So let's try David instead, who is a man after God's own heart, who has the character. Great David, the best of us. He can do it, right? Oh, 2 Samuel, he falls. So we need a better king. We need someone better than that. And the New Testament authors, they realize that Jesus, he truly is the king that he has come, and they apply this psalm to Jesus, showing that he is the king. And here in this psalm, we see, you might be saying, okay, that's cool, he's the king. What does that actually have to do with, like, our everyday life? And, like, we're still in America. Like, what is that? What does that actually mean? And here in this psalm, we see two different relationships that we as people can have to our king. The first is found in verse 2. Let's read verse 1 and verse 2 again. Verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, and when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Bible, that's the personal covenant name for God, Yahweh. So Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people. Here, he's talking about your people, the people of God, citizens of the kingdom, those underneath the king's authority, will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours. The first relationship that we can have to the king is one of citizenship. And citizenship is characterized by offering ourselves freely, it says in verse 3. What it means to offer ourselves freely is without expectation and without exception. Notice that in the next verses, it says that from the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth will be yours. That means the best of our lives, the best of our resources, the best of our time, that is what the king gets. There's no exceptions. There's no, I'll, I'll like have God over here and then I do my own thing. No, he's the king and he's the king over all and there's no exceptions in my life. Instead, every single aspect of who I am is submitted to his authority. There's no exception. And there's also no expectation. To give yourself freely means without the expectation of reciprocity. Saying, God, if I do enough for you, you need to do enough for me. The character of a citizen to our king is one of offering ourselves freely without expectation and without exception. And at this point, it's really easy to get like legalistic, right? <laughs> just be like, no, just go out and like, do God proud or else he's gonna like lightning bolt you because he's the king you know and it's easy to get really really legalistic but if you go that route you will never truly be able to offer yourself freely without exception and without expectation and here's the reason why if the gospel is true and I believe that it is what the gospel teaches is that you're you're standing before God cannot be any better or worse. It's as good as it will ever be for all time and in all eternity. And your behavior, you have nothing to gain or lose in regards to your standing before God. You are that loved, that accepted right now because it is based on what Jesus has done, not on what you have done. That's what the gospel teaches. Therefore, there's literally, there's nothing to gain, nothing to lose from, from our obedience or disobedience. We are that accepted, that loved, that, ex that much of a son or daughter of the king. So you might be saying, Stephen, well, you just took away all of my motivations to do anything good. Well, good. I'm glad I did. <laughs> because if that was your motivation, then you're not offering yourself freely. You're expecting something. And it's not free there's a cost to your obedience. It is only if we are truly and completely accepted by God will we ever obey and follow after him without the expectations, without expecting him to do something for you, without the need for reciprocity. It is only through the gospel will we ever be able to offer ourselves freely. So as citizens of the kingdom of God underneath our king, we offer ourselves freely. We have nothing to gain or nothing to lose. We're offering ourselves freely. But that's not the only relationship to the king that's described here. In fact, a significant bulk of this psalm describes not the relationship between the king and its citizens, but the relationship between the king and his enemies. Look with me at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. 
He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That last verse is probably a reference to Gideon. After he defeated the Midianites, all of his army were chasing after the Midianites and they got tired and they drank some water out of a brook in order to be able to continue their conquest. The next relationship that one can have to the king, there's the citizen and then there's also enemy. And now the question is, is who is the Bible talking about here when he talks about corpses being piled up on the day of wrath and kings being shattered? This is not something that I, this is something that's really hard to talk about. And this is something that we have to be biblical. If I am driven by my emotions or if I am driven by my own cultural moment, I am going to end up looking exactly like what everyone else is offering. I'm going to be simply a product of the sum of everyone around us. Instead, we have to be truly biblical and look to the scriptures and say, okay, who are the enemies of God and how is that defined? And when he comes back, what does that mean? And so when we look to the scriptures, when we look biblically, the first enemy of God that we see is obviously the supernatural enemy of the devil. We see in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, enemy, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And in Revelation 19 and 20, we see the dragon take up arms against God and his people and everything light and everything good. And God sends Michael the archangel to go and fight against the dragon. And ultimately in chapter 20, he is cast into the lake of fire. He is ultimately defeated. When Jesus comes back, he will destroy everything evil in this world. Every injustice, every evil, everything wrong will be made right. That is the enemy that he destroys. In the Bible, though, there is also not just the enemy, that is, the devil, but the Bible identifies also another enemy. And that is identified in the book of Romans, chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, turn there, because this is really important. Romans, chapter 5, explains. We're going to start in verse 6 and read down through verse 11. It says... For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Here in this passage, we see 
that you and I, when we are not, when we don't confess our faith in Jesus and believe in him, when we aren't a part of the people of God, we then are enemies of God. And there are three different descriptions here that describe those who are outside of the people of God, those who don't believe in Jesus, don't believe in the gospel. It says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The first thing that the Bible identifies us before we believed in Jesus, or if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, this is the state in which we have all been, is a state of weakness. And almost every Christian pastor at some point has said something along the lines of we are all weak and God comes to give us strength. We're all weak and God comes and he gives us strength to be able to overcome the obstacles, overcome and and achieve personal excellence and, and, and all of those kinds of things. And in some senses, they're not wrong. It's incomplete. Because the Bible goes on to say, not only were we weak, we were weak, but he goes on and says, not only that, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only were we weak, we were also sinners. And then some pastors, only the really hardcore Bible-thumping ones, get to the sinner part, right? (laughs) That we were all sinners. But a lot of people can redefine sin. And here's a common redefinition of sin that I think a lot of us, including myself, fall into so often. Have you ever heard that sin is brokenness? That we're all broken. And that's true on the one hand. But here's what's true about it. Sin causes brokenness. Sin is not brokenness in and of itself. And here's why that's important. If we say sin is brokenness, we no longer are the enemies of God. We're now the victims. Because now it's brokenness and it's something outside of us that's the real problem. We've been broken and out there is the problem. I am not the problem. Out there is the problem. It might be the system. It might be my parents. It might be the the, the place I was born. It might be my culture. It might be the politics. It might be whatever it is. That's the problem out there. I am not the problem. And when we define sin as merely brokenness, we locate the problem outside of us. And we're no longer really the problem. But if the problem is outside of us, then the solution is outside of us. And we will never truly understand the gospel because when Jesus comes and dies in our place, that doesn't make sense. If, if the problem was out there, if the problem was the system, he should have fixed the system. He should have gone out there and, and, and fixed my family. He should have gone out there and done all these other things that are so wrong in the world. Why, why is that not being fixed when the problem root truly is with us? Therefore, the solution isn't external, it's personal. The solution is inside of us. The solution that needs to happen is a total restoration, a total resurrection, a heart of flesh replacing the heart of stone. Because the problem isn't on the outside, the problem is on the inside, which is why the Bible goes even further to say not only were we weak, not only were we sinners, but then also we were enemies. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear, going the step further, that the problem isn't external, the problem is inside of us. That we are the problem. And that we are enemies of God. And tonight... What that means is 
is that if you don't believe in Jesus, this is your state. Weakness in sin and as an enemy of God. And if you do believe in Jesus, you get to rejoice because that is no longer what we are. We then instead have been reconciled. That's what this next verse says. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We were reconciled to God even though we were enemies. We've been reconciled. That means the relationship has been restored. How does that happen? That's what we need more than anything else. If you're not a Christian here, what you need more than anything else is to be reconciled to God. More than anything. More than external circumstances. More than anything else in the entire world, you need to be reconciled to God. How does that happen? That happens through the next thing that this psalm talks about. Back to Psalm 110. The next significant picture, office, identification of who Jesus is is found in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, weird name, <laughs> also mysterious guy. We're introduced to him in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham comes to him and uh, after he just defeated a bunch of kings and then he gives him like 10% of everything, he like tithes to him and then like he's called the king of peace and like the king of Salem and, and he's a priest and all this stuff. And you're like, okay, who is this guy? And then the book of Hebrews comes and he, they pick up this verse and they say that Jesus, he is now the new high priest. Melchizedek, he was a priest before the Levites came around. The Levites came around in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Exodus where they were the priests for a really long time. But those priests, it says in Hebrews, they could not bring about salvation. They couldn't bring about restoration. They couldn't bring about reconciliation. And the reason why is because it only dealt with the surface. It only dealt with things that were external. It didn't actually change the heart. That's why they couldn't actually bring about salvation and reconciliation. And so Jesus then comes and the Hebrew says, he's now the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This first priest, this original priest, and what he can do is he can actually change the heart and he can change the soul. And what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, it says he, speaking of Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, he is our high, high priest. And what that means is, is that he can save to the uttermost. It might, you might feel like I'm an enemy of God. You might not think you're an enemy of God. You might think you're the worst person ever. I know deep down, I'm the worst person ever. And so when I look at this verse, I can see that God will save to the uttermost. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what your mind has thought. God can save you and he can reconcile you to himself because he can save to the uttermost. And not only that, he ever lives to make intercession for them, which means that God goes to the Father on our behalf and prays for us. To intercede for someone is to plead their case to plead for good on their behalf. And Jesus himself is praying for us before God. 
as our high priest, he can pray for us. He is praying for us. And that means our salvation, not only can he save the worst of us, but he saves us all the way to the very end. He holds us because he's praying on our behalf. He holds us. He carries us. In, in the Gospel of John, he says that I have you in my hand and no one can snatch you out of my hand. He holds us. He carries us. He can save to the very uttermost. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've been. It doesn't matter what I've done. It doesn't matter where I've been. We can be saved. And here's how. When you look back at this psalm, you see, it says, He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Who is Jesus? He's the king. And what did the king do? The king came down and he was shattered. He was crushed. He was whipped. He was bruised. He was beaten. He was shattered. And he took the wrath of God in our place. We, the enemies of God that should have been punished, should have been destroyed, all of that was poured out on Jesus in our place. So that way we don't have to receive the wrath of God. We can receive forgiveness. We can re receive reconciliation. It says, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter their chiefs over the wide earth. What did Jesus come? He came and outside of the city, outside of the city, he became a corpse. He died. That all of those throughout the entire wide earth, everybody, anybody who would believe in him could be saved. That is the kind of king that we follow. He is a priest who not just sacrifices a lamb, but becomes the sacrifice himself to take away the sins of the world. This is the character, this is the person, this is who Jesus is, and there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. It says in Acts chapter 4, verses 12. There's no other name. Salvation only comes through Jesus. Only belief in him can be able to provide reconciliation to God, the thing that we need more than anything else. And he accomplished that. He died for us while we were still sinners. While we were enemies of God, he died for us. When we were weak, not when we were strong, not when we were good, not when we got our act together, but right exactly where we were at, he comes and he saves us and he reconciles himself to us. And the last thing that this psalm points to for the character of Jesus is not only is he the king, not only is he the priest, but he is our God. In the New Testament, the New Testament writers reference back to this in order to be able to prove Jesus' divinity. Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 44, he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, and he says, referencing back to this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is a Psalm of David. David is talking about his descendant, the Messiah, but he calls his descendant Lord. That's not how it works in an honor culture. The patriarch wins every time. <laughs> so how could his descendant be greater than his patriarch? That was Jesus' question. What is the implication? That his descendant is qualitatively superior. In other words, he is God himself. 
In the book of Hebrews, they go back and reach to this and shows that Jesus is greater than the angels. He's not just a great supernatural being. He's actually greater than the angels. He is divine himself. And Peter, in Acts chapter 2, he references back to this psalm, and he says, in, in reference to the ascension, that he was resurrected from the dead, Jesus was resurrected, and sits down at the right hand of God. He is God. This is the kind of God that we serve. This is the kind of God that's real, that actually exists, that he is truly the king and he is truly the priest and he truly died on the cross for us. It's literally been mind-blowing me the last, just wrecking me the last couple of days because he's, that's real. It's not fake. It's not a story. It's not made up. It's actually real. And that's what we have to look forward to is living with him forever where his will is done. That he's truly the king, he's truly the peace, he's truly our God. Is this the God that I serve? Or do I serve a God of my own imagination? Do I serve a God that I make up because it's convenient? Do I serve a God that's over on the side? Or do I serve a God who's really God? Who's really the king? Who's really the priest? And his word goes. What is the kind of God that I serve? Or, or have I or have we domesticated him? Made him a nice, neat, clean little God and a nice, clean little gospel that's just trying to get me through my hard times, moralistic, therapeutic deism, you know, just a nice, clean little thing that I can put in my nice little compartment. God is so big. He's so magnificent. He's so huge. He's God. That changes things. That changes everything. And if you aren't a Christian here tonight, I encourage you to believe in him and confess your faith in him. Because what you need more than anything else is reconciliation. What you need more than anything else is a relationship with God. That is where life is found. That is where forgiveness is found. That's where the ache and the emptiness and the thirst and the hunger. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. Come to me. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Come to him. He's the one. He's the only one who can satisfy. He says, if you drink of me, out of your innermost being will gush forth torrents of living water. That is a fountain, a spring, a source inside of you that can actually satisfy, that can actually bring peace, that can actually bring hope. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that, that is present. He isn't distant. And so tonight we're going to do something different. You never know what's going to happen on a Thursday night. <laughs> tonight we're going to do something different. And we're going to do basically 10 minutes of just like acoustic song playing in the background. And we're actually going to meet with God. <laughs> like we get to meet with God. We get to meet with God. <laughs> like we get to talk to him. If you're a Christian, we get to talk with God. <laughs> if you're not a Christian, you can talk to God.
And you can say, be my king, be my Lord, be my savior. I'm no longer compartmentalizing you. I'm no longer putting you to the side. Instead, I'm going to confess my sin and recognize that I am your enemy. I am against you. If I'm not submitted to you, I am against you. And I confess that and I can, I submit myself to you and believe in you and you'll find forgiveness. You'll find new life. You'll find hope. And so we're going to spend 10 minutes and just really meet with God and, and do business if business needs to be done. Talk with him. If you're like me, I, there's so many days when I don't. And it's so convicting that there's so many days that I don't talk with God. And yet he prays on my behalf every day. He does so much for me. We get to actually spend 10 minutes to talk to him. And then after that, we're going to sing one or two worship songs and we get to worship him because <laughs> he's worthy. He's so worthy. He's God. He is bigger than anything that we are or anything that we can even imagine. He is worthy of our worship. And it's just going to be one or two songs. And so, Joe, if you want to come on up. I'll pray to just lead us into it and really just spend time with God. Spend time with Him. Talk to Him. He is, he is truly the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. He is the way. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to really meet with you, really talk to you, Lord, I confess my sin that I, I don't follow after you the way that I should. I compartmentalize you. I don't focus on you the way that I ought. Help this time to truly be according to your will, according to your grace, and that you would meet with us, that we would talk to you, that we would be like Abraham, the friend of God. We were enemies, but now we are no longer called enemies. We are friends. And I pray that we would be like Abraham, that we would be your friend. That we would talk to you, that we would share our heart, share our visions, share our worries, troubles, anxieties. And Lord, that you would be not just our friend, but you would be our high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. That even though we know we don't do what we ought and we fall and we make mistakes so often, you can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. That you were tempted in every point like as we are, yet without sin. That you were perfect, yet you felt sore muscles, headaches, toothaches. Lord, you felt it all. Help us to meet with you as someone who actually understands and is actually close because you are close and you do understand experientially. And Lord, I pray if there is anybody here who doesn't believe in you, doesn't know you, hasn't confessed their faith in you and bowed their knee to the King, I pray that they would in these next 10 minutes that they would meet with you, talk to you, submit themselves to you and that you would be the King of all of our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you are the kind of king that would die. You're the kind of king who shows grace and love. 
you're the kind of king that's compassionate. Pray that you would help us to meet with you. Pray against distractions. Pray for focus. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. And we pray this in your name. Amen.